Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. When John Dillinger walked out of the Indiana State Penitentiary in May of 1933, he was like a recent graduate walking out of a technical college with a two-year degree. He'd worked in the prison shirt factory alongside a handful of robbers, and he'd learned valuable lessons. Two of the crew were youngsters like himself, Homer Van Meter and Harry Pierpont. The three of them had become friends while serving time together, and they would reunite for the second half of Dillinger's career. There was also James Jenkins, who would play a role much sooner than Van Meter and Pierpont, and so would Jenkins' sister. And then there were the real teachers, Walter Dietrich and James Clark. They were protégés of the godfather of modern bank robbery, Herman Lamb. Lamb was now dead, but all the rest of these men worked long hours together in the shirt factory. Dietrich and Clark tutored the younger men, who were eager students. They would all rob banks together in the coming months, in one combination or another. But the first to emerge from prison was John Dillinger. Without his friends, he had to assemble a gang of his own. After a rough start, he partnered with a reliable man and soon built himself into a prominent criminal in the Midwest. By the time he helped his friends break out of prison, he was well on his way to becoming public enemy number one. From Black Barrel Media, this is season four of Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer. In this season, we're telling the story of the most notorious bank robber in modern American history, John Dillinger. This is chapter three, Partners in Crime. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially in the spring when the pollen from desert plants here in Arizona is off the charts. I get all the classic symptoms, coughing, sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, and a pressure buildup in my head. The works. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. The double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. 
Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. The new Carlisle Bank in Carlisle, Ohio, holds a place of distinction in American history. It's the place where the greatest bank robber of the modern age began his career. John Dillinger and two other men, Lefty Parker and William Shaw, entered the bank. They covered their faces with handkerchiefs like Old West bandits. Dillinger ordered the bookkeeper to open the safe. The bookkeeper was nervous and he struggled with the lock. Shaw thought the man was stalling and asked permission to kill him. Dillinger calmly told the bookkeeper to take his time. More employees entered the bank over the next few minutes. They had to be corralled by the gang. Dillinger performed a gentlemanly act with one. He laid down a smock for a female clerk so she wouldn't have to lay on the bare floor while he tied her hands and feet with wire. Finally, the bookkeeper opened the safe. The robbers grabbed the cash, totaling $10,600, and fled. John Dillinger had officially robbed his first bank. It was a good score, but it was only the beginning of a spree that day. Unfortunately for Dillinger, the day did not end as well as it began. That night, the three men hit a drugstore in Indianapolis. Dillinger and Shaw ran in, grabbed the cash, and ran out, and then discovered an absurd situation. The third man in their crew, Lefty Parker, had parallel parked the getaway car between two other cars. And not only that, it was such a tight fit that Parker had to smack the car in front and the car in back to get out of the spot so they could escape. Dillinger must have been furious. He had spent nine years in prison learning new tactics and dreaming of the time when he could put them into action. And now here he was stuck in a Three Stooges routine. Half an hour later, they hit a City Foods supermarket. Shaw suggested the robbery, and that was because he'd already robbed the place at least once. He thought it would be an easy job. But when he and Dillinger went in and demanded the money, the manager told them that the store had changed its policy after the last robbery. The company now collected all the store's cash near the end of the night, and the collector had just left, so there was no money to steal. Dillinger stormed back outside while Shaw stayed behind to steal some cigarettes. As soon as Dillinger got in the car, Parker took off, leaving Shaw behind. Dillinger made him go back to collect their comrade. When they fled the scene a second time, Parker was so shaken that he drove through a stop sign. It was clear to Dillinger that he needed a better gang. Dillinger made a list of men he'd met in prison who had recently been paroled. He wanted to assemble a dream team of bank robbers, but that would take time. Until then, he enlisted some new guys who were dubbed the White Cap Gang. They satisfied themselves with small holdups of places like grocery stores, drug stores, and sandwich shops. They hit a windfall at one of those shops and managed to steal $340. The money was enough to buy a used 1931 Chevy Coupe. With a new gang and a solid getaway car in hand, 
Dillinger planned his second bank robbery. But as he was about to learn, his streak of bad luck was not done yet. The target was a bank in Daleville, Indiana. It was what robbers called an easy jug, which meant it should be a simple heist. Dillinger and the White Cap gang planned the robbery from Muncie, Indiana, 10 miles away. But then, four members of the gang were arrested by Muncie police. That left just Dillinger and a man who became a longtime associate, Harry Copeland. They decided to rob the bank anyway. Dillinger had been out of prison for two months and seven days. Dillinger's Chevy Coupe was maroon. To help their chances in the robbery, they painted it green. But for some reason, they didn't paint the wheels, which were also maroon. So when they drove into Daleville on July 17, 1933, they parked a green car with red wheels in front of the bank. Copeland stayed in the car. He was the getaway driver. Dillinger conducted the robbery by himself. He stepped inside the small bank at 12.45 p.m. To his surprise, he found only one other person in the building, a 22-year-old teller named Margaret Good. Everyone else had gone to lunch. Dillinger strolled up to her, pulled a pistol from his shoulder holster, and said, Honey, this is a stick-up. Give me all your money. Margaret instinctively raised her hands in the air. Dillinger calmly told her to put them down. If someone looked through the bank windows from outside, he didn't want to make it obvious that a robbery was in progress. This needed to be easy and quiet. Margaret took the money out of the teller's drawer and laid it on the counter. Dillinger told her to open the door that separated the lobby from the cage that protected the employees. She nervously told him she didn't have a key. So he easily hopped over the six-foot barrier between them. His athletic grace earned him a nickname in the newspapers, the Jackrabbit. But there was still a second cage to contend with. This time, Margaret was able to open it. She led Dillinger to the vault, and he stuffed handfuls of cash into a sack. He grabbed a coin collection and three diamond rings. Ironically, Two of the rings had been dropped off by the daughter of one of the cashiers. She wanted to keep them safe while she played tennis. With the loot in hand, Dillinger was almost ready to leave. But then a gas station attendant walked in the bank to make change. Harry Copeland jumped into action. He exited the getaway car and slipped into the bank behind the attendant. He pointed a gun at the man and told him to move over to the far corner of the lobby. Then a farmer came in, and a barber. Copeland ushered the two new arrivals over to the attendant and herded all three into the employee cage. Dillinger finished in the vault and then left Margaret in the cage with the three men. Dillinger and Copeland walked out of the bank, slid into their two-tone car, and sped away. The job had definitely been an easy jug, even with the random customers who'd walked in during the robbery. And now Dillinger's reputation began to swell. Newspapers wrote colorful stories that were filled with far more rumor and speculation than fact. 
And then the Indiana State Police identified the man they believed was responsible for the plague of robberies in the state, John Herbert Dillinger of Mooresville. He didn't commit all the robberies they gave him credit for, but he was now squarely on their radar, and he didn't stay quiet for long. Two days after the Daleville robbery, he and Copeland hit another bank. And this one was not as calm and cool as Daleville. Dillinger and Copeland struck the Rockville National Bank about an hour west of Indianapolis. Dillinger wore a dark brown suit and a light-colored hat. Copeland tried a minor disguise. He wore a bandage on his left ear. This time, they both went into the bank in the beginning of the robbery. And it was a good thing they did. Dillinger pointed a 45 automatic at the bank president and barked orders. Do as we say if you don't want to get killed. Get down on the floor, he yelled. The bank president did as he was told. But his son was a wild card. The president's son was in his office off the lobby. He had the door closed, but he quickly understood the situation. He pulled a Colt 38 from his desk. He hurried to his office door, cracked it open, and peered into the lobby. He saw at least one of the two robbers. He aimed the gun through the crack in the door and squeezed the trigger. The bullet zoomed through the lobby and right past Harry Copeland's head. It smashed a large plate glass window. Dillinger reacted instantly and without fear. He rushed into the office and shoved the barrel of his gun into the young man's stomach. He stared into the young man's eyes and pulled the trigger. But instead of the explosion of a bullet, there was only a dull click. It's unclear why the gun failed to fire, but the sickening sound of that click remained with the bank president's son for the rest of his life. After the misfire, Dillinger wasted no time. He knocked the young man to the floor and grabbed the 38 pistol. Then he hauled the banker's son back to his feet and shoved him into the lobby. He pushed the young man all the way through the bank and then outside onto the pavement. Copeland grabbed what little cash he could find and headed for the getaway car. When he made it outside, he stepped over the man who had tried to shoot him in the head. Dillinger spent three more minutes searching the bank, but he missed nearly $3,000 in a teller's drawer. Irritated, he hustled outside and dove into the car. This time, the duo drove a black 1933 Plymouth sedan that they'd stolen from an Indianapolis priest. As Copeland hit the gas, Dillinger threw nails out the window to stop anyone who might follow them. And as it turned out, someone did. The bank president's son had some grit and courage. He jumped in a random car, which apparently had the keys in it, and chased the robbers. He dodged the nails, but his car was no match for the getaway car. Dillinger and Copeland easily outran him. The robbery was mostly a failure. It had not been a simple, quiet affair, and they had just $60 apiece for their efforts. The getaway car they had just abandoned was worth more than $900 by itself. But Dillinger was not a man to dwell on the past. He was about to meet his dream car and his next girlfriend. 
The girl was Mary Jenkins Longnacker. She was the 23-year-old sister of James Jenkins, one of Dillinger's friends from the shirt factory in the state pen. She was married, but separated from her husband. Dillinger looked her up in the middle of his bank robbing spree. She and her best friend escorted him to the Chicago World's Fair, where he discovered his dream car. The 1933 Chicago World's Fair was called A Century of Progress. Its theme was technological invention. Science finds, industry applies, man adapts was the motto. And that described John Dillinger to a T. Dillinger stood in the General Motors exhibit and stared at a full working assembly line. The exhibit was enormous, and he got an up-close look at the incredible progress made by the automotive industry during his time in prison. It was here that he discovered his dream car, the Essex Terraplane 8. The Hudson Motor Car Company boasted that the vehicle had the highest power-to-weight ratio of any car at the time. That meant, pound for pound, it was one of the fastest cars a person could buy. Dillinger knew it would make for one hell of a getaway car, but he would have to wait to get his hands on it. Dillinger, Mary, and Mary's friend continued to wander around the fair. Based on the five rolls of photos they took during the experience, they had a good time. Dillinger was certainly smitten. He wanted to get married. He offered to pay for Mary's divorce and the custody case involving her two young daughters. He enjoyed kids. He was eager to have a family of his own, and her daughters would definitely be included. When the trip was finished, John left the Chicago area, but he wrote to Mary professing his love, and he offered a unique way to prove it he could break her brother James out of prison. Maybe he meant it as a joke and maybe she laughed at it. Or maybe he was serious and she was too. Because Dillinger would, in fact, organize the prison break of James Jenkins and the rest of the shirt shop boys in the very near future. But at that moment, John wanted to make one more swing through his old neighborhoods before he continued robbing banks. When he was back in his old stomping grounds, he learned that his parole officer wanted to arrest him for numerous violations. The officer received a tip that John was headed to Indianapolis, where his older sister Audrey lived. The officer ordered surveillance on her house while he hurried to town to intercept the famous robber. When the officer arrived, he found a squad car parked a few hundred feet away under a shade tree, not at all hidden from view. The deputies in the car were asleep. The parole officer knocked on Audrey's door. He learned that John had recently been there, while the cops were literally sleeping on the job. The parole officer thought he knew where John might go next. He jumped back in his car and hurried to the family farm in Mooresville. He ran up to the house, but John Sr. said his son wasn't there either. And after two strikeouts, the parole officer quit his chase. Sometime later, John quietly returned to the farm to give his father a birthday present. It was a nice shirt and tie. Dillinger took great pleasure in his ability to slip past the police, and he liked to toy with them while he did it. 
As his crime spree continued, he became more daring and more flamboyant. The legendary John Dillinger began to take shape, and soon he appeared to be almost unstoppable. He avoided danger at almost every turn, even in situations that had proved unlucky for previous outlaws. And his next robbery threaded that needle perfectly. The young man from Indianapolis seemed to have an almost supernatural flair for getting away with it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at A little over a week after his trip home, John Dillinger strode into the First National Bank in Montpelier, Indiana. His partner, Harry Copeland, went inside as well. They added a third man to the team for this job. He was probably Sam Goldstein, another associate from the Indiana State Pen. The third man was the getaway driver, and he waited outside in a dark blue Dodge. It was early afternoon. Dillinger wore a straw hat and chomped on chewing gum. He walked up to a teller and said, This is a stick-up. All we want is your money. Stand still and you won't get hurt. He jumped over a guardrail and ordered the bank president to take him to the money. Dillinger and Copeland collected $6,200 from the vault and another $3,900 from the tellers. Then they pushed all the employees and customers into the vault and made their exit. They left with all the money in the bank, except 40 cents. As they stepped outside, an old man on the street said, Looks like the bank's being held up again. Dillinger turned to him and smiled. I'm not surprised, he said, and then jumped in the Dodge and made a clean getaway. As well as the robbery went, it could have been a disaster. The mayor and the police chief shared an office right above the bank. They kept rifles on hand in case this kind of thing happened. There had been another robbery attempt three years earlier. One of the crooks had been shot dead through the upstairs window. The other two were immediately caught. But when Dillinger robbed the bank, the mayor was out of town and the police chief was two blocks away helping on a road construction project. Whether it was good luck or good planning, Dillinger and Copeland had pulled another easy score. In response, the Indiana State Police put out an all-points bulletin on John Dillinger and his accomplice Harry Copeland and a couple other ex-cons believed to be running with them. So with every police precinct in Indiana on high alert, Dillinger decided to go next door to Ohio, and his next robbery was a wild fiasco. 
Four days after Indiana put out an APB on John Dillinger, a green sedan pulled up to the curb in front of the Citizens National Bank of Bluffton, Ohio. Five men in suits stepped out and walked toward the bank. They left the engine running. Two men stopped at the door. They stood outside to guard the exit. Three men went inside. One lingered just inside the front door to watch the lobby. The other two calmly walked up to the teller windows to get the money. Those two were John Dillinger and Harry Copeland. Copeland took the lead. Dillinger hung back. Copeland asked the assistant cashier for change for a $5 bill. As the cashier counted out the money, Copeland pulled a handgun and spoke very softly. Stand back, he said. This is a stick-up. Copeland pulled out a second gun, and now he had one in each hand. He kept them trained on the employees and the customers while Dillinger vaulted over the cage fence. Dillinger grabbed cash from the teller's windows and shoved it into a white sack. But the meager haul was not to his liking. You've got more, he said to the bank's bookkeeper. Where the hell is it? The bookkeeper pointed toward the vault. But at that moment, an alarm blared outside. Copeland wanted to leave immediately, but Dillinger said they had plenty of time. Dillinger kept opening drawers as he hunted for more money, but then a new sound stopped him in his tracks. Gunfire. Someone was shooting outside. The alarm hadn't phased him, but gunfire was a different story. Outside the bank, the alarm roared through town. People drifted out of shops and businesses to see what was going on. They started to form a crowd near the bank, and the two gang members who guarded the door got nervous. They fired across the street to push the crowd back. Bullets shattered windows and smashed holes in the walls of businesses. Most people ran for cover, but an employee of the local newspaper rushed outside to see the calamity. A bullet ricocheted near him, and he quickly turned around and ran back inside. A security guard at one of the businesses ran into the hardware store and shouted, get the shotguns. But by the time he and the other man grabbed heavy weapons, the gang had already piled into the getaway car. The town's postmaster grabbed his 45 and stationed himself behind a brick column outside his post office. He was ready to fire at the bandits as they drove past him, but the green sedan with Indiana license plates sped out of town in the other direction with a machine gun aimed out the back window. The Bluffton, Ohio robbery had been Dillinger's closest call to date. And afterward, another factor of his success shone in stark reality, the unreliable witness. Perhaps dozens of people saw the gang drive away from the bank, but in the chaos and the stress of the situation, no one could agree on the make of the getaway car. People identified it as a Buick, an Essex, a Chrysler, a Pontiac, and a Chevrolet. In 1933, cars were not as distinctly different as they are today. That's true. But it was still just another small thing that helped Dillinger stay free. The police set up roadblocks north and south of town, but the getaway car was never seen again.
About a week after the Ohio robbery, John Dillinger bought his dream car, the Essex Terraplane 8. It was black with 17-inch wire wheels and a straight-eight engine. He'd had his eye on it all summer after he'd seen it at the Chicago World's Fair. Now it was finally his. And the car probably received an enthusiastic endorsement from his friend Sam Goldstein, who had just bought one himself. Goldstein was one of the many friends Dillinger made in prison. Sam was potentially the getaway driver for the Montpelier, Indiana job, and he was definitely part of the five-man team who had just robbed the bank in Bluffton, Ohio. But Sam's recent luck was not as good as Dillinger's. On August 22, 1933, Dillinger and Goldstein were driving through Gary, Indiana in Dillinger's new Essex Terraplane. Dillinger pulled up to Goldstein's apartment complex and dropped his friend off. Then he drove away. As Goldstein approached the building, the Indiana State Police rushed out of their hiding spots and grabbed him. They arrested Goldstein and confiscated his brand new Essex Terraplane. In some ways, the car was a much better catch than the man. The Terraplane was much better than any car in the fleet of the Indiana State Police and now it would be the primary vehicle they'd use to try to catch Dillinger. But somehow they had just missed him. Apparently they didn't know that he was the one who had just dropped off Sam Goldstein. The most wanted man in Indiana had just avoided capture through sheer dumb luck. But that was Dillinger's luck. The problem was, it wouldn't last much longer. Next time on Infamous America, Dillinger continues his impressive streak of bank robberies, and he introduces a new man to the gang. The young man has a unique nickname based on his boyish looks, but he's a volatile, angry character. Dillinger helps his friends from the shirt factory break out of prison, but he doesn't know that the police are closing in on him. Another trap has been laid, and this time, his luck runs out. That's next week on Infamous America. This season was written by Sean Puglisi and myself. Music editing and sound design by Mike Hissong at Sneaky Big Studios. Artwork by Matt Lockery of My Colorful Past. I'm your host and producer, Chris Wimmer. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Please visit our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, for more details and join us on social media. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram and B Barrel Media on Twitter. And if you want to contribute to the production of our shows, please visit our Patreon page. 
You can also find discounts on our merchandise. That's patreon.com slash blackbarrelmedia. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.